reason was I had cancer when I was a kid. I had an aggressive bone tumor called a Ewing sarcoma on my left tibia when I was 13 years of age. And I had to go through a year and a half of chemotherapy, six weeks of radiation, um, surgeries, and um, ended up coming out completely cured from it. I had some issues with it and, and a little bit of residual um, symptoms. Even still, I, I have some atrophy in my leg and I'm a little shorter than I should be because it, it stunted my growth, my left leg. But I came out of that experience wanting to go into medicine and wanting to help people who are suffering and have other medical conditions who um, and just help them through that process because I know what it's like to be a patient. I was a year and a half of chemo. I was very sick, so I know what it's like to be a patient. just listening to Dr. Patrick Olson, an orthopedic surgeon in Park City, Utah, who is also the founder, co-founder, I should say, of Plant Based Utah. Not only is he a phenomenal physician, but someone that understands what it's like to be sitting in the chair of a physician's office and being told that you have cancer. He's a survivor and someone who honestly just has a genuine spirit of caring for their patients. And I don't think you'll be disappointed with this conversation. You guys check out plantbasedutah.org. There's a conference coming up on October 13th. And please, if you're in the area, sign up to go. I don't think you'll be disappointed. There's some great speakers in line. everybody back to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis and today I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Patrick Olson. How are you, sir? Hi. Hello. And you are an orthopedic surgeon in Park City, Utah, and we have some very exciting things to talk about plant-based Utah. And first of all, as everyone here is, you know, familiar with being a physician and there's a lot of struggles and stuff, but then to find a plant-based diet and how you incorporate that into your practice, but we want to know first of all what brought you into medicine? Because I think you have a really cool story. So it dates back to when I was a little kid. So two reasons, mainly my father was a physician. He was an ophthalmologist and I just, he was a great example of somebody who loved his profession and was doing a lot of good for a lot of people. The second reason, probably the more important reason was I had cancer when I was a kid. I had an aggressive bone tumor called a Ewing sarcoma on my left tibia when I was 13 years of age. And I had to go through a year and a half of chemotherapy, six weeks of radiation, um, surgeries, and um, ended up coming out completely cured from it. I had some issues with it and, and a little bit of residual um, symptoms. Even still, I, I have some atrophy in my leg and I'm a little shorter than I should be because it, it stunted my growth, my left leg. But I came out of that experience wanting to go into medicine and wanting to help people who are suffering and have other medical conditions who um, and just help them through that process because I know what it's like to be a patient. I was a year and a half of chemo. I was very sick, so I know what it's like to be a patient. And I think that was really, for me, um, the, the foundation that kind of gave me the motivation to press forward through that, that whole process of getting into med medicine. Um, so went to medical school and, uh, uh, to continue on with that, if you want me to. Yes, please tell us your education and what you, why you chose orthopedics. 
So um, when I so before medical school, I actually got a master's degree in public health. Wait just a second, though. <laughs> um, so I did a master's in public health because I've also been interested in prevention and in public health. And so I was fascinated with public health. And then I decided to go into medical school. During medical school, I was thinking that I'd maybe go into pediatric oncology to help kids that had cancer because that was what I had. Um, but I was also interested in public health, so I thought maybe primary care was a better fit for that. But then I, I unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I fell in love with surgery. So I, I loved surgery, and I especially loved orthopedic surgery. Um, my dad's one of my dad's best friend, uh, who's who's a, a, he's he's not 100% plant based, but he's a, definitely a, a plant predominant uh, doc. Um, was a great influence on me in orthopedic surgery. So I chose orthopedic surgery in medical school, and I did my residency at Dartmouth in uh, New Hampshire in orthopedic surgery. And in between my second and third years of residency, I, I also had a, another master's degree. I got a master's in, in uh, healthcare leadership at the Dartmouth Institute. And so I was uh, thinking again, I'd kind of look and focus into this public health world, but at the same time being an orthopedic surgeon. I finished my training in, in New Hampshire, and then I did a fellowship at Columbia in hand and microsurgery. So it's a, it was elbow, wrist, hand, and microsurgery, and uh, was very interested in hand surgery. And that's what I do kind of my daily is, is really hand, wrist, and elbow surgery with microsurgery. But while I was in New York is when I came across this interesting documentary called Forks Over Knives. And I, I know you and a lot of your listeners have seen this documentary. My sister-in-law uh, told me about this. She said, she said, you got to see this documentary. It's called Forks Over Knives. It's this incredible documentary where patients are actually able to reverse a lot of their chronic diseases. And, he's, and so I, I watched it with my wife and I was completely blown away. I've never seen anything like that in medicine that you can actually reverse a lot of these chronic diseases. And for me, being interested in public health, and I've always been interested in nutrition and exercise, and uh, I was drawn to it. And I could not stop thinking about it. Uh, I ordered the China study. I read it um, as fast as I possibly could. I looked up a lot of the studies on the resources um, that he quoted to make sure that he quoted them correctly. I actually looked up the original studies that he quotes. And I, the more I read, the more convinced I was that he was right. So like in between surgeries and nights and weekends, I'm looking up this, this public health and uh, prevention stuff that I'm finding on plant-based nutrition and, and I'm just blown away. And so uh, almost overnight, I got rid of all the uh, uh, animal products in our fridge and freezer. My wife fortunately was on board. We kind of didn't really understand the practicalities of it. We didn't really understand how to make food that was only plant-based um, and we had three kids at the time we've since added a fourth and so uh, but it was hard but then we just we were pretty I was pretty set in, in my ways because I was so convinced it was right and eventually it's it's now become just part of our lives mm -hmm. and, uh, so what so, year was this this is 2012 okay so, so we made that transition at the same time yep yep we did <laughs> Um, so I came back to Utah, so I, I joined um, the Rosenberg-Cooley Metcalf Clinic in Park City, Utah, and I'm their elbow, wrist, and hand surgeon. I also do some general orthopedic trauma because we get a lot of ski accidents here in Park City. And my partner, Tom Rosenberg, who was one of my mentors growing up, he was always really interested in nutrition and public health. And so I started talking to him about this. And so um, we said, well, we have to do something about this. We have to try to make a difference. And so we therefore formed a group called Plant-Based Utah. 
and uh, we, it's only been around for two, about two years now. Um, we have two symposiums. Our first symposium was last year, uh, sold out within about a month uh, here at Park City Hospital. Um, and we had our keynote speaker was Dr. Esselson. So, awesome. so uh, Caldwell Esselson, I'm sure many of your listeners, I know you know him well. He is a, an amazing man in, in so many ways. And, uh, and so he was a keynote speaker with his sweet wife who talked about the practicalities of it. And then uh, we also had Keegan Kuhn. So Keegan Kuhn is the director of a documentary called Cowspiracy. I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have seen Cowspiracy. And he talked about the environmental effects of it. And so that was last year. And then this year on October 13th, coming up in just a little, a little over a week, we have our second annual symposium. And I wish we could do it here in Park City, but we kind of outgrew it so fast that we're doing it down in Salt Lake uh, at the Salt Palace, which is uh, about a half an hour away from Park City. And uh, our keynote, we have four keynote speakers this year. So we have the Shurzai's, Dr. and Dr. Shurzai. So they're neurologists, a husband and wife team neurology uh, a duo powerhouse from Loma Linda, University of Loma Linda. And they've done some, uh, some amazing studies on the benefits of brain health on a plant-based diet, specifically in preventing Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm -hmm. And so our focus this year is on brain health, but we also have a twist and that's where we're also gonna be talking about autoimmune disorders and inflammation with Dr. Brooke Goldner. So Dr. Goldner, as I know you've had her on your podcast and she, uh, she uh, reversed her lupus completely on a plant-based diet. And then her husband, Thomas Tadlock, is a bodybuilder and he's gonna talk about some of the myths behind protein and, and meat and, uh, and how you can thrive athletically on a plant-based diet. So, so we're excited uh, for this event that's coming up in the near future. That is very exciting. So October 13th, and I'll put the link to uh, your conference. Also, you have quite the team. So I was reading about all the bios of your team on the plantbasedutah.org website. <laughs> I was like, Wow, each one of these individuals would be a great podcast interview. <laughs> yes, so. we, do. we have a great team. It's you know, it's hard to find. It's interesting how when you get into this world, you find people, but it still was a kind of a hard process to find. But they came out of the woodwork, and we have some great people. You know, a lot of we have athletes and nutritionists like Jessica Cooper. Um, she's a, an, an ultra endurance athlete who's also a nutrition has her master's in nutrition, and so she's all about this and. Um, actually, Tom's daughter, uh, Chandler Rosenberg, is, uh, is the one kind of running everything, too. But we're all just a bunch of volunteers. Um, Tom and I don't get paid for what we do. We're just, uh, we're just doing it for the love and, and uh, feel like we, we just feel like we have a lot to give back. And so you had mentioned that you have children now and you brought this to the family. So what was that transition like for you bringing it to you're at that point, three kids, like, how did you start? Cause I know ours was, I fumbled a lot and we use a lot of transitional because <laughs> it was like, I don't know what to feed you. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so, funny. And it is, it, that was a real challenge. In fact, that almost, it was not, I don't think so much me, but it almost pushed my wife back into to going back to more, at least fish and things like that. Just because it was so hard. Um, she's like, are we just going to eat pasta and salads every day? Like, is that all you do in your plant-based uh, diet? 
Um, so initially it was really hard, um, but it, you know, dairy wasn't too much of an issue because I think my kids have had some lactose intolerance issues. I didn't really realize that. I just kept pushing them to do it because as an orthopedic surgeon, you got to get your dairy for your calcium, which is a total <laughs> myth. Um, but that's what I thought. So we would push them to have their dairy and have their cheese and those kind of things. So getting rid of that wasn't hard because they didn't like it anyway. And mm. so, so we got rid of that. Our one son did, but the other two didn't really like it. Um, and so once we found food, so it's the important part is finding those recipes that they really like. So when you do like some really good plant-based enchiladas, you know, jackfruit tacos, you know, all these great things, when you find these things, then the kids just, just love it. So I mean, last night we had chickpea noodle soup. So with chickpeas rather than uh, uh, chicken. And, and so there's some great recipes out there. And once you find them, it's, it's not really that big a deal. Yeah, I think that's the the one part is just taking the flavors that you like and just mm-hmm. transforming those to the, the plant-based version. So I think that's a really good good point. And then tell me a little bit about how do you approach this subject with patients who are, you know, they walk in, they're thinking they're talking to their surgeon about the procedures or whatever, recovery or prior whatever, <laughs> when you bring up plants. <laughs> right. So, um, so it really depends on what they come in to see me for. So if they come in to see me and they say, you know, my hands are numb, I have, uh, you know, and, and it seems like they have carpal tunnel syndrome, or if they have, you know, swell, swelling in their hands and their joints to their body. So inflammatory arthropathies. So if they come in to see me about those types of things, it's a perfect segue into talking about plant-based nutrition, mainly because of the, the powerful anti-inflammatory effects of a plant-based diet. So I always like to talk about this with patients. So if you, if you open up a biochemistry textbook and you look at the inflammatory cascade, it starts with this substance called arachidonic acid. So arachidonic acid is a phospholipid. It's an omega-6 fatty acid that's found in our cell membranes. And uh, um, that's how anti-inflammatories work, is they work by blocking arachidonic acid from turning into the, the byproducts or the products of it, which is like prostaglandins and prostacyclines and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you, you get plenty of it in your own body, but you also get it from your diet. So and then I go into the fact that there, the National Cancer Institute was interested in this question because cancer uh, is also contributes to, or inflammation contributes to the growth of cancer cells. So using national health surveys, they came up with a list of foods that contain arachidonic acid from, and from starting from the top down low. And number one on the list is chicken. <laughs> I always like to share with the patients is chicken. Number two is eggs. And then you wow. get red meat. So so I just go into the fact that, and so they are always shocked when I first tell them that the number one source of arachidonic acid in patients' diet is chicken. And so people think it's an anti-inflammatory food, but it couldn't be more, uh, pro, I mean, it's really pro-inflammatory because of its, its containing of arachidonic acid. And then I talk about the, the, the anti-inflammatory effects or mother nature's ibuprofen, mother nature's steroid are these powerful phytonutrients that we call carotenoids, which are the things that give the colors to the plants, the purple and purple cabbage, the reds and red peppers, you know, the blue and blueberry, like those colors are these powerful phytonutrients that have powerful antioxidant properties and anti-inflammatory properties. 
And then refined and processed foods can be also very pro-inflammatory. So, um, and then the anti-inflammatory spices like turmeric and those types of things too, we talk about. So I just said the best thing you can do is you maximize whole plant foods in your diet and then you minimize animal products and processed foods. And there's no more powerful anti-inflammatory diet. Almost, if you look at the big meta-analysis studies, the big studies that, that look at this, especially like systemic reviews, those kind of things, Animal-based diets are very pro-inflammatory. All the inflammatory markers like CRP, ESR, all those things are elevated, but um, uh, plant-based diets are very anti-inflammatory. So we talk about that in detail and even things like carpal tunnel syndrome, people are gonna say, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, in your wrist, you have your flexor tendons that run right by the median nerve. And the flexor tendons, when they swell, there's not a lot of room in the carpal tunnel and therefore your nerve gets pinched and that's called the median nerve. And when that nerve gets pinched, your hand falls asleep and you have all those symptoms. So the tendons or the sheath around the tendons are very sensitive to nutrition. We know at least in studies that people that have elevated LDL cholesterol are at higher risk of carpal tunnel syndrome. Hmm. And so, and I think part of the reason why is because those tendon sheaths swell and when they swell, you, you get that nerve gets pinched. So if people were to truly go an anti-inflammatory diet, I think they would find reversal even in that carpal tunnel syndrome. It hasn't been shown yet. Um, which was, I'd love to get that study together to see if we can't show that you can actually reverse carpal tunnel syndrome on a plant-based diet. Wow. Outside of surgery versus... Correct. Yeah. And so, um, and, and for me, that's what I do. I do, I do it through a scope. I do endoscopic carpal tunnel releases and patients do great. But if you can avoid surgery and you can mm -hmm. actually reverse carpal tunnel syndrome on diet alone, I think you can do it because I've, I haven't really met any patients. Uh, you know, there's a handful, especially traumatic carpal tunnel syndrome, you get it, but you don't meet a lot of patients who are truly living a plant-based diet who develop things like carpal tunnel syndrome mm -hmm. or even a tenosynovitis, just, just swelling in their hands when they wake up saying, well, my hand is just swollen and, and it, it hurts to move my fingers and I mean, there's just, those things are so responsive to plant-based diet, but it's rare I can get patients to actually believe it. Hmm. That would be really fascinating because I used to do, I used to work with some work comp folks in Colorado and that'd be, cause there was a lot of carpal tunnel. How many, how many uh, carpal tunnel patients do you typically, would you estimate that you see in a year? Um, so I would say every time I have clinic, I have at least three to four. And so mm -hmm. if you count that, then I'm doing clinic three times a week. So at least I'm seeing 10 to 10 or so a week. So, and then average that out over 50 weeks. That's a lot of patients. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if it's quite that much, but it's probably pretty close. I think I'm doing three endoscopic carpal tunnel releases tomorrow. Wow. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty common. Wow. And so then what's the recovery for that too? Um, so it is pretty minor. Um, there's two ways to do carpal tunnel surgery. One way is an open technique and one way is a smaller technique with a scope. Um, mm -hmm. I like the scope and studies have shown that an average patient stayed nine days of recovery time. So it's, you know, it's really a week and with a small incision. So it's pretty minor and that's why the patients want a quick fix. And that's, mm -hmm. and that's why almost like I tell patients, I'm like, Hey, you can try this diet for about a month. Um, we can get it fixed, but you might be able to avoid it if you really try it. Mm -hmm. And it's rare that I've ever had a patient really say, I, I want to try the diet. Interesting. Yeah, everyone needs, that's where I would bring in the subject of all the other things. I, I play a little mind game. I always consider myself a salesman for this diet. I got to be a better salesman than what 
other people are doing. That's how I approach it. Very interesting. Okay. So what's the normal recovery then? So they're, 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 you're saying the recovery is just a week or a little it's about So for, for an endoscopic, it's about a week. Normal recovery is about two weeks. Just no heavy okay. lifting just until the skin heals. So that's oh. all you're relying upon is the skin to heal. Gotcha. So it's, okay. a, it's a pretty fast recovery. Um, okay. But even things like trauma, um, you know, just bone healing, I mean, anti-inflammatory uh, helps. I mean, osteoporosis, those things, eating a lot of phytates. So phytates mm. are what's found in legumes, so beans and, and also whole grains and those types of things have a high concentration of phytates, which basically act like a Fosamax, which is um, so they, they decrease the osteoclast or decrease the ability of the osteoclast to resorb bone. So bone health and bone remodeling are both osteoblasts, which build bone, and osteoclasts, which break down bone. Phytates, which are found in legumes, um, so there's been actually quite a few studies looking at this, where people who, who eat the most phytates actually have better bone health. And the reason why, at least the thought, the reason why is because it, it, it prevents some of the osteoclasts from forming. Um, but you don't have any of the side effects that you see with things like Fosamax, such as osteonecrosis of the jaw. And, uh, and also, uh, we also saw quite a bit, even in New Hampshire, uh, Fosamax-induced femoral um, stress fractures. You see a fracture of the femur just below the hip that you get from patients who are on long-term Fosamax, just because that medication doesn't really understand the biology as well as phytates do. And so you, you, you turn off the osteoclast and then the osteoclasts are still building. So the bone becomes more dense, but it also becomes more brittle over time. And so we were seeing Fosamax or um, bisphosphate induced uh, femoral stress fractures. And those are actually more difficult to treat than, than uh, your standard hip fracture. Oh, that is fascinating. So what is your thought on soy with the beta estrogen receptors and bone density health? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, soy, soy as a uh, you know as a is a phytoestrogen mm -hmm. is actually um, so I I can't I, I have to be careful acting like an expert on the soy with bone health, but at least my feeling is that soy is not bad for your bones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a phytoestrogen. It probably helps with bone, um, uh, and so I don't think it's as bad as as people are kind of making soy out to be. That's so when my, we had talked earlier about my son when he broke um, his bone. So I dove into the bone health <laughs> research and um, found some interesting things on soy. And we had always, we were never soy phobic anyway, but um, I made sure to push the tofu and the soy and stuff on him. And um, I mean, he's also young, 19 and healthy and mm -hmm. was going to have rapid recovery, but I, I can't help to think that that's certainly the diet did help. Um, as far as when you have patients who say, yes, I want to do this, what is your first bit of advice for someone? Because you know you how you found this and you're like jumping in and now you're like, now what do we do? Because I know I stayed up to one in the morning trying to figure out what I was going to feed the family the next day. What, what, do you, what advice do you give or do you help Overcome so, so a couple of things. I mean, one thing I said, it's all about finding the right recipes. And so I give some recipe websites that I think are, are very helpful. Um, I, I don't, I'm not like proponent, I'm proponent of any one particular website more than others, but I personally like Minimalist Baker. Um, I think she makes things pretty easy. 
and really good recipes. So um, that's what happens when you're sitting in a clinic room. For those who are listening, the, the light keeps going on. <laughs> um, so, uh, exactly. So I, I would say, um, so Minos Baker is a, is a great go-to for us. The other thing that I say to patients, so find good recipes um, and uh, don't be hard on yourself. If, if for some reason you fall back or something, just don't say you can't do it. You got to just keep plugging forward. And then I say, you just got to prep yourself for your GI to be get used to this a little bit because um, then I go into the fiber talk. So, so fiber, we're 98% of Americans are fiber deficient. Mm-hmm. And I just talked about the fact that animals have bones as their skeleton, plants have fiber. So there are no, there's no fiber in animal products. It's only found in plant foods. Uh, I, embarrassingly, I actually didn't know that until later, uh, later on. You would think in medical school and everything, you'd learn this. I, I have some stories for you from not for myself, but from colleagues asking me some very interesting questions. Like, yes, yeah, don't, you're not alone. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so, um, so then I talked about the fact that because your fiber intake is going to go through the roof, if all you're eating is plant-based foods, your GI has some time to get adjusted to this. So you're going to feel a lot of rumbling, a lot of gas, a lot of those types of things. Just hang in there. You got to give it about, I usually say about a month before Mm -hmm. your GI tract really gets easy. I don't know what you say, but I say about a month. Um, You know, it's, it's about, it depends on the individual, but a month is okay, but typically three to six months. I say, mm-hmm. you know, there's Bino, there's Gas-X, we can certainly move that. Mm-hmm. There is a small subset of patients, however, um, who really struggle. And I think there's a SIBO component. So it's a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth issue that mm-hmm. I'm learning to deal with fairly well <laughs> because there seem to be the ones that are like, Dr. Morris, this is more than just gas, it's painful. And mm-hmm. there, um, I've had some patients who literally when I've inherited them, they were already in trouble. Some were down to maybe 20 foods um, mm-hmm. that even the high fiber foods are causing a lot of gastrointestinal distress. And there was some, you know, the fat soluble vitamins are down and it's, it's, it's an interesting entity to deal with. Um, but yeah, but I, I agree. I think it's probably three to six months. I had one that was a dental hygienist and she was like, she goes, you don't understand. I'm in close proximity to my patients and I can't, I can't be doing this. I was like, this is called gas X <laughs> and stay away from the beans for a little bit. Just start with a few lentils, you know, and do small increments, right? Small lentils, then go into the, wait for the big black bean at the end. But um, yeah, but you know, I, I think that's, yeah, I think it was, I was really lucky. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. So we ate a lot of beans and potatoes. So I always, we ate beans all the time. So I was, I didn't have the GI upset, but thinking of the kids, that little one, he would cry and have these horrible stomach issues mm-hmm. and just random times. And I, it was the milk. The moment we cut that out at 13, he no longer had those issues. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because that was the same thing with our daughter. The exact same thing because she always complained of stomach issues. And, and I said, you got to drink your milk, Ruby. Her name is Ruby. I said, you mm-hmm. gotta, it's good for your bones. You got to do it. And she just said, but damn, my belly hurts and I don't like it. I'm like, you got to do it. <laughs> I feel horrible even <laughs> looking back on that because I was, I was so, so believing that that was the truth. And so uh, since she got, she got rid of it and her stomach issues went away, just like you said. And I just yeah. look inside that. And now she's one of the tallest girls in her class. And she's just, you know, just, I mean, it's Incredible. not a problem. Yeah. No, not at all. I think that's, it's funny because I, this is a other thing. Milk for me, it's pretty easy. I, I've got it down to about a two minute spiel with patients. Mm-hmm. So I talked to them about the, you know, growing calf from 60 pounds to a thousand pounds in a year, 
And I say, you know, there's a lot of estrogen and progesterone. And if you're a guy, you probably don't want to be absorbing that. But the other thing is, you know, I'm very blunt. And I said, you know, as a grown human, I think it would be a little odd if I go and say, hey, I'm going to go drink a glass of human breast milk. And I was like, that's a little strange. Don't you think that I'm going to go drink a glass of cow breast milk? That's exactly what you're doing. So, and they're just like, Ooh, I'm like, well, (laughs) and I, 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 that is a great, great approach. I also say how, um, especially when we talk about inflammation, you know, and I just Mm -hmm. talked about, so the one thing that's important is that is, is, is dairy has a lot of inflammation. So inflammation can also show itself in the form of white blood cells. And uh, white blood cells is also known as pus, and there's actually pus in, in cow's milk. And I said, you know, they pasteurize it, so they kill it, so it's dead white blood cells, but that's basically what pus is. And so I said, there's nothing more pro-inflammatory than eating direct inflammation down in dairy. Yeah, and the other thing is too, you know, and, and this has been known for years, is that the moment that we switch over children to whole milk, you know, they tell you at one year old to go to whole milk, is that milk has been known for years to cause, you know, gastrointestinal bleeding in children, which leads to anemia. Mm-hmm. They've known that forever. I'm like, why would I give my child something that causes anemia and inflammation to the gut? It makes it makes no sense. But we're pushing this in medicine mm-hmm. and type one diabetes risk too. Right, absolutely. And then you got your molecular mimicry going, and yeah, there's a lot of interesting things. But that's I love that you guys are bringing in the autoimmune issue because it's a very important issue, and I think one that we're going to see more and more of with kids with food allergies and asthma, and mm-hmm. I'm sure they're going to find a connection with autism at some point mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, um, no, I agree. That is a fascinating, but I, I think you're exactly right. So this is fabulous, and I know I promised to keep you at 30 minutes, so we have three minutes left. I just want to ask one final question. <laughs> if um, you could give one advice to anyone listening who's considering starting a whole food plant-based diet, or um, maybe speaking to someone or their loved ones, what is that one bit of advice that you would give? Um, so can I just dive limit to one? <laughs> yes, or two or three, sure. This um, is your time limit restrictions, as long as you like. <laughs> um, so so I, actually, it's funny that you brought that up because this is this is the little handout we give for our plant-based nutrition. Wait, can I see that again? Conference. Yeah, so this is this is a this is our handout that we're giving for a plant-based Utah conference where we talk about the speakers on October 13th. And on the back side, we talk about exactly what you asked. So five reasons to go plant-based. So I don't know if you you or your listeners can see this. So I love it. One, it will decrease your risk of chronic disease. So if you if you think about it, even the studies, there's been no the only studies that have shown reversal of chronic disease. The only ones, including our number one killer is heart disease, is a plant-based diet. It's the only one that's shown that. So as Dr. Gregor always says, if it's our number one killer, and if it's our only diet that's shown reversal of our number one killer, it should be our default diet until proven otherwise. And I agree with that. And then including things like obesity, cancer, I mean, interesting stuff with diabetes that Dr. Bernard has showed. So it will decrease your risk of chronic diseases, even reverse them. It will change the microbes of your GI tract. So that's the other reason you'll do it. So we're learning more and more about the symbiotic relationship we have with the microbes in our gut. And we're going to find more and more that the best um, thing we can do for the microbes in our gut is a plant-based diet. So you probably know all the research on TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, the New England Journal of Medicine articles that found that people have elevated trimethylamine oxide, right, elevated risk of cardiovascular disease, including heart disease and stroke. 
Triamethylamine oxide is really only found and developed in patients that, in people that eat animal products through phosphatidylcholine. So if you don't eat that, you're gonna kill the bacteria that develop trimethylamine oxide. And so you're gonna just change the microbes in your gut and it's gonna affect your overall health. Number four, it will change your gene expression. So one interesting, really interesting study, um, at least as far as uh, at UCSF, um, uh, looking at uh, telomeres. So telomere length, I don't know if you remember hearing about that study, so where you can actually change uh, the telomeres will lengthen. Telomeres are really kind of the, you look at your shoelaces, the end caps of your shoelaces. And uh, when those start to shorten is when your, your life starts to shorten. And when those are gone, you basically pass away. A plant-based diet is the only diet that's shown that the telomeres can lengthen um, when you eat that way. So that's pretty incredible. Also, even just some of the studies looking at a cell defense mechanism and gene expression of some of those things have only been shown on plant-based diet. And then lastly, a plant-based diet will improve the health of our planet and the lives of all its inhabitants. So if you think about the math of it takes 18 pounds of grain to make one pound of beef, 22,500 gallons of water to make one pound of beef. Um, and it's just, it just doesn't make sense that the math just doesn't make sense. Like you, you just, we're not, we don't have enough resources to support a, an animal-based diet. And so uh, from an environmental perspective, there's no, no better thing we can do for the environment than going a plant-based diet. And it makes sense to me that what's best and healthiest for the planet is also what's best and healthiest for our bodies. I mean, I think we're going to find more and more that there's these symbiotic relationships we have. And I think that we're going to find that that principle is going to be more and more true. And so the more we evolve into a vegetarian or, or plant-based diet, the better. And that's, that's uh, Albert Einstein's quote. Uh, he even uses that word that we need to progress. We can't regress to a paleo diet or the paleolithic period where the average lifespan was in, in the 20s, we need to evolve, we need to push forward, we need to progress, we need to look at what's, what's next on the horizon. And, and from an environmental perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. And then there's a lot of ethical arguments to be made in a plant-based diet. I have to admit, I didn't go into it for ethical reasons. Uh, for your listeners to be completely dis disclosing, I was the hunter. So I grew up hunting uh, elk and deer. In Utah, that's part of my love uh, growing up. And when I came across this research when I was in New York at my fellowship in Columbia, I called my dad and said, Dad, I, I'm not going to be hunting this year. And, and so I think there are arguments to be made from an ethical perspective because um, when you kill an animal to eat something, you have to ask the question, did I really need to do that? I think there were times, uh, and there may be sometimes in some areas of the world that maybe, I don't think so, but maybe that is necessary. But I don't think this is a time that that's necessary. And so the question is, if it's not necessary, do we really have to do it? Mm -hmm. um, so there are an uh, ethical uh, argument to be made on a plant-based diet. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I obviously, I didn't even go into it for um, ethical reasons either, but it was a patient like we had mentioned earlier before we started. But you turn into that, um, you really start in becoming aware of animals and their emotional states. And um, I can't honestly uh, even walk down the meat aisle anymore. It really bothers me. Um, so I, I can't even imagine what it is like for someone who comes into this from the ethical standpoint is such a passion and how much of a struggle that must be just even to go to a grocery store. 
Yeah, I absolutely. And I think some people are just born with extra sensitivity. It seems like, like, I think some of these, these animal rights folks were born with more sensitivity in it. And I, and I understand that more now. I didn't appreciate it before. And I, and I was a little bit callous with some of their feelings on that because I thought it was a little bit unreasonable, but now that I, I see their perspective, it's, it's, it's really humbled me. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really, I really understood their perspective and, and uh, I, I, yeah, I just, I, I get what they're saying. And I also get why they're so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And because I, I see it too as a, like, I have to tell people, right? That's how I see it. Like, if I don't tell you, I can't sleep. <laughs> right. So um, it's, a, it's, it's true. And I'm so excited to see that there's more physicians like yourself who are taking this on and sharing it with patients in the, in the trenches. And I think that's fabulous work that you're doing. And I can't wait to see um, how your conference turns out. It's amazing. Congratulations. Hey, so much. I appreciate it. And again, all your listeners are welcome to please uh, sign on. We'd love to have you come. If you're ever in the Salt Lake area on October 13th, you just go to plantbaseutah.org um, and sign up. But we'd love for you to come. It's more the better. And I will have the links um, to you and your clinic as well in Park City, but also plantbaseutah.org. So awesome. thank you again. Thank you. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you.